Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Before we get started with today's show, I want to tell you guys about betonline.ag. Welcome to 2022, everybody. Even if I say the sports calendar doesn't reset till after the Super Bowl. It's a new year, and BetOnline remains the number one spot for all the best wagering action in the new year. You can sign up today and receive a 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit using the promo code BLEAV, B-L-E-A-V, when you sign up with the link in the description to this episode. BetOnline, where the game starts. All right, everybody, you know what that music means. It's time for another amazing, fantabulous episode of Wired Up. This is Wired Up episode 106. Welcome in, everybody. For back-to-back weeks, we need to do multiple Wired Ups because Tom Brady retiring requires a special podcast here on the Take It Easy podcast, and so we have our originally scheduled Wired Up, which is a long, great conversation with our friend Walter Mitchell. We do the Red Rain podcast together. He works for SB Nation's Revenge of the Birds, Arizona Cardinals content. It's good timing, too, because still not resolved yet is the head coaching situation with the Jaguars that we're going to talk about first here, where Byron Leftwich wants the job. But he needs them to fire Trent Balky and hire Adrian Wilson. But now the Cardinals want to promote Adrian Wilson to GM so that he doesn't leave. And Steve Keim gets a higher role in the organization. And all of it is very complex and fun and interesting. We're going to talk about that with Walter. We're going to talk about Sean Payton. A little bit of Joe Burrow talk mixed in there. Um, and it's a great fun podcast. I'm very excited for you all to hear it. So I'm going to step out of the way. We got three hours of content coming at you pre-gaming for conference championship week. So without further ado, here is Walter Mitchell of SB Nation's Revenge of the Birds. Joining us for another wonderful Walter Mitchell Power Hour. I would love to get started. I, I'd love to get started with that point, I guess. Um, I, that's the thing that I find most fascinating. So I, I will ask you, Walter Mitchell of the Red Rain Podcast, SB Nation's Revenge of the Birds, deputy editor and great follow on Twitter. What do you make of what is going on between the Jacksonville Jaguars, the Arizona Cardinals, and a battle over Adrian Wilson as a power broker for their teams. Right. Well, I fully understand why Byron Leftwich would like Adrian Wilson as his GM. Uh, Leftwich uh, got to know Adrian very well on a daily basis while coaching for the Cardinals. Um, And while there, Bruce Arians nicknamed Adrian Wilson the VP of stuff. And um, because Wilson was all around the building in a ubiquitous way, making his presence felt and um, doing a great job as in a variety of different um, functions in the football operations, most of which was uh, in his um, capacity as a talent scout. 
on both the pro and uh, college levels. And, you know, Adrian Wilson is, uh, he's a go-getter. Um, he's a right place in the right time kind of guy. Uh, he's got an eye for talent. He's got an eye for, for uh, players who play the game the way he did. Um, I would imagine, um, I don't have proof of this, but I would imagine that he was instrumental in encouraging the Cardinals to trade up to draft for Buda Baker, for example, who has, uh, who is been now a perennial pro bowler. And he's, uh, the epitome of the hard hitting safety that, that, um, Adrian Wilson was, um, so from that standpoint, I totally get it. I'm sure that um, Bruce Arians encouraged Byron Leftwich to make that ultimatum, um, <clears throat> both from the standpoint of uh, Byron going into a situation where he can trust his own GM. Uh, there were candidates, apparently, who refused to interview with the Jaguars because of Trent Balky. And um, that's never a good sign. And, you know, there's, there's controversy there. Um, and a bit of dysfunction, I think, within the organization. I think that, uh, you know, Bruce Arians encouraged Byron to, you know, make that pitch. Um, because otherwise, I, I think Arians would encourage Leftwich to look at other places. Um, and um, other opportunities and stay put until he gets one. So, yeah, I, I think it's, a, you know, I'm hoping that the Cardinals, this wakes the Cardinals up to realize that they've got, a, you know, a, um, a really budding potential star GM in the building. I think that um, if they, I think they could make some switches and, promote Steve Kime to an executive spot um, and, uh, you know, insert Adrian uh, Wilson as GM and possibly have the best of all worlds and not have another guy leave the Cardinals building. I mean, some really great things seem to happen to coaches and players who leave the Cardinals. Like uh, <laughs> it's going back to another guy who worked under Steve Kime is Jason Light. The Bucks um, GM, who then hired the, Bruce Arians, yeah. at, in Tampa, and Bruce Arians who left the building, you know, and other guys who have left the building. Players have won rings, <laughs> Anquan Bolden for one, Tyron Matthew for two. Um, you know, it's just uh, it'd be nice if the Cardinals could. Like the song says, hold on to what you've got. And um, <laughs> so I, and I've always been a huge fan of Adrian Wilson, not just the player. I mean, I hear fans arguing with me that just because he was a great player doesn't make, doesn't make him a slam dunk as a GM. But then I've been pointing out this morning to people is, well, what about John Lynch? John Lynch was, was a controversial hire. Nobody thought like, Hey, this guy hasn't even worked in an, you know, in a front office, and the 49ers promote him to or uh, sign him as GM. Well, John Lynch has just gotten the 49ers to 
two NFC championship games in three years and one Super Bowl bid with one on the well, line and, coming up. And not just that, the bulk of the team is done through drafting. Because I, I was figuring out yeah. this week, what is the thing that the 49ers do better? Because the 49ers are this great exception of teams that don't have a good quarterback who end up making consecutive dynastic runs. This year being more surprising than 2019, of course. But the thing I kind of figured out is like only the Legion of Boom and what they did compares to what the 49ers had, which is like five all pro players all on their rookie contracts at the same time. Like not just hitting on a bunch of draft picks, but hitting on a bunch of draft picks one after the other after the other to give them the flexibility to pay Jimmy Garoppolo $27 million when Jimmy Garoppolo is maybe a top 20 quarterback in the NFL. Yeah. It give, it, it's, it's that work from him and, and the front office and whoever made the decisions. I don't know how much decision-making he has versus Shanahan, but that team is built on the drafting status. And it's the thing that I conclude with coaches all the time. I don't know about general managers, but with coaches – there's like seven good ones and everyone else is kind of interchangeable. Like yeah. I think, th- I think after this off season, now that, um, now that Peyton's gone, there's uh, I think 18 job openings in the last three off seasons in the NFL. Some are right. double ups like the giants and the Jaguars and the Texans, but even still, that means half the league has changed head coaches in the last right. three years. So everyone else is pretty interchangeable except for the eight good ones. Yeah. And I don't know what makes one of the eight good ones. Well, I mean, you look at John Lynch. In which they play his – he drafts players for their toughness. I mean, look at Debo Samuel. Okay? I mean, look at their six-round pick from last year, Elijah Mitchell. Those <laughs> guys the other. are ballers, man. Those guys – they only know one speed, and that's 100%. Um, and they got after it. Uh, and so, you know, people say, well, you know, football, ex-football players don't necessarily make great GMs. But, yeah, they do if they know what to look for <laughs> in personnel. And if the personnel plays like they did. I mean, these Niner teams played play precisely as John Lynch did. Tough relentless, ultra-competitive, leave it all out on the field. I mean, if you look at them man for man, you know, signing Trent Williams, that guy can block out the sun. Yeah, I've been saying it all week. That dude is the best offensive lineman in the NFL. Oh, my God. We just didn't care for a decade because he played for Washington. It was never any good. Just a decade, best offensive lineman in the NFL, and nobody paid attention to him because he played for Washington. Yeah, and, uh, you know, Fred Warner. I mean, they've hit the jackpot on so many. Nick Bosa. Kittle, fifth-round pick. Kittle. And I that mean, you're bringing up a funny point, which is they've done this Legion of Boom thing. I call it Legion of Boom just because it's the idea of hitting on great players all while they're on their rookie contract. But yeah. they did it while being terrible at drafting in the first round, which is pretty incredible. They took Solomon Thomas with the third pick in the draft yeah. when Patrick Mahomes and Deshaun Watson were there. They took Mike McGlinchey over Colton Miller with their first round pick and I think that was the year that Lamar Jackson was still available in the draft when they took Mike McGlinchey. 
they took Brandon Ayuk with pick 25 and Javon Kinlaw traded DeForest Buckner for Javon Kinlaw. By the way, DeForest Buckner, I think, was inherited by John Lynch. I don't think he was a John right. Lynch pick, right. but traded him for Kinlaw, and Kinlaw doesn't really start anymore. So they've been terrible at drafting in the first round. Well, I, would, still I wouldn't say terrible. Um, Brandon Ayuk, keep an eye on him. He's coming on big time. Uh, he's going to be a dandy, I think. I really like that kid. I know Jefferson wasn't available, but there was there was a someone really good who was picked right before Ayuk. I yeah. can't remember who it is. I mean, you know, Ayuk struggled some as a rookie, but look at him now. I mean, you know, he's fitting in well into their mold. And, um, you know, I really like the McGlinchey pick and still do. Um, I think that oh. he's a he's a really fine right tackle. Um, and, um, you know, yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember who it was Colton now. Miller, T. Higgins, T. Colton Higgins Miller was the next made me nervous, and he's done better, but uh, than what I thought he would. So kudos to him. But, but just the same. I mean, I don't think those are missed picks. McGlinchey's been solid, and their offensive line, and been a key part of an offensive line that has got to be considered one of the top five in the NFL. Yeah, in fairness to McGlinchey, he wasn't as bad as Solomon Thomas. <laughs> in fairness to him, yeah, that he's one been was, a four-year Was starter. that a John Lynch pick or previous? I believe that was the first year Shanahan and Lynch. I think that was their first draft okay. together. Well, but they did know, trade down and got the pick that became Fred Warner because the Bears traded up to two. Right. So that that's one small victory out of that is that they did get the pick that became Fred Warner, but also passed okay. on a franchise well, quarterback. <laughs> I mean, Solomon Thomas was a stud local kid at Stanford. Coming out, I when I evaluated him, I had high marks on him too. I it was kind of the only knock on him was he was a little smaller than you typically would want. But then again, so is Aaron Donald. Um, and unfortunately, uh, you know, Solomon Thomas never really got on track, um, and that's. You know, it can happen, but uh, you know, I, I don't think it was necessarily a bad pick. What I do think was a little faulty on their part was, and, and Armstead, too, is turning out to be a brilliant pick, um, you know, and especially now that they've, they've completely decided to use him inside. Um, he's looking like a little sort of little slimmer version of Calais Campbell these days, uh, you know, he's doing a heck of a job. So, I mean, the only thing that I would critique is how many defensive linemen they took in a row in the first in the first round. But here's the thing is that they want to start with their trenches and make sure they got horses in the trenches, and you can't fault that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and bringing it back to the Cardinals' point with Wilson, the Cardinals have already done the difficult part of going through the rebuild like the fact that the rebuild netted them a franchise quarterback for the next decade plus the ability to get deandre hopkins plus buda baker plus like having like four or five great players like i would argue that the cardinals have as many great players as the 49ers from their rebuild and the arizona cardinals now are kind of in this position where a lot of it is tinkering around the edges and that's kind of where wilson 
the the job of Wilson or Kime or whoever's going to be in charge there is similar to where the 49ers were like two years ago when they, you know, traded for Williams and brought in, uh, what's the name of the, when they traded for Emmanuel Sanders during that 2019 season, Yeah, they got, I'm forgetting the name of the guy also, but anyways, the, the, like kind what of position? tinkering around the edges. It's, it's corner, but it's not Richard Sherman. It's uh, Jason Verrett. That's what I'm thinking of. Jason Verrett. Yeah. Bringing in Jason Verrett and yeah. those like tinkering around the edges was the important part because the foundation was there. Maybe they need like one more foundational piece, but the Cardinals were as good as those teams that were at the top of the NFC this year. Heck, the NFC had the 49ers and Rams in the conference championship game. So really it was anyone's conference if the Cardinals had just stayed healthy. So I think the the key parts are there. And I think whoever gets hired as general manager, or if Wilson gets promoted or whatever it ends up being, I think the foundation is already there. And so now it's a lot of like tinkering around the edges and making one really good strategic move, like, you know, Buffalo getting digs or something like that to really, you know, get the team to the place. But I think they're going to be good either way, which is why it's so hard for me to evaluate who's a good GM and who's not, because it's hard to know the process and the responsibility for the decision-making. Well, I think the Cardinals have made recent strides, but I, I think up and down the rosters, the Rams and the, as, as far as starters go, the Rams and the 49ers have superior rosters. Um, that, that, I mean, and they've cashed in a little better on their draft picks than the Cardinals have thus far. Um, and in some ways the Seahawks have too, but Mm -hmm. I do agree that the Cardinals have made some strides talent wise to get on a par or close to the others. The problem this year was obviously that once um, their star wide receiver went out, uh, that changed pretty much so much of what they they did in the red zone and in on offense, um, and it changed the way teams could defend the Cardinals. When J.J. Watt went out, it opened up. Uh, it made the Cardinals' running defense more more vulnerable, and their pass rush less ferocious Um, because although Watt only had one sack in in seven games, he was right up there in pressures and um, which is often the case for, for an interior rusher. Cause if the interior rusher is coming right in the quarterback's face, he typically tends to try to chuck it out of bounds or throw it away. Uh, But, because Watt was there so often right there to make a play. Um, so losing Watt was a huge factor. And then um, losing their top corner, Robert Alford, at a position group where they were kind of thin already. And the one of the worst things that happened all year was the Packers poaching Rasul Douglas off the Cardinals practice squad. <laughs> and getting Devondre Campbell, who made a first-team All-Pro I know. this year. I was talking about this after that game. Like, how pissed are Cardinals fans that they had 
Devondre Campbell and Rizzle Douglas on their team, and they both go to the Packers and just become studs all of a sudden. Yeah. Um, oh, boy. Don't get me started on that. Um, <laughs> it's it's crazy how that works out sometimes. And the Packers still didn't win. I, ugh, well, that one was incredible. It certainly um, does not speak well to the Cardinals coaching on defense to see two of those things happen. Um, Campbell did not play that as well, nearly as well when last year as a Cardinal. But then again, he was kind of rendered a lame duck, a one-year lame duck when the Cardinals drafted Isaiah Simmons and projected him at Campbell's spot, Um, which a year later, we still don't know whether that's the best way to that's the right position fit for Isaiah Simmons. My feeling is he's a strong safety who you can move around um, in a variety of different ways like they did at Clemson. I never was convinced at Clemson even there that the times they put him inside were hit, you know, were the spots where he thrived best. I always felt it was moving him around at safety and corner and deep safety and, and in coverage and in pass rush. And he did, you know, he's a, he's a queen on the chessboard. You can move him all around and get so much um, productivity from him. But I don't think sticking him inside in the NFL is, is, is going to maximize his talents. And um, so I think that that's still the jury's out. <laughs> Talk about keeping a guy in the building. I mean, they obviously they said going into the free agency last year that Devondre Campbell was their number one target, and they tried to sign him to a long year deal, but Campbell had more expensive, um, a more expensive price tag than they were willing to pay, and so they agreed upon a, like a one year, um, eight million dollar contract as a prove it contract and. Um, and yeah, and Campbell was good in spots and he helped change, um, the, you know, cover a classic Cardinals weakness from the previous season where they couldn't cover a tight end on a JV team. Um, and, uh, Campbell helped out on that. And of course, Isaiah Simmons also coming in to help on that, um, change that narrative around, which was great, but. Against the run, Campbell was not as dynamic, nearly as dynamic as he is this year in Green Bay. Now, again, he signed a one-year deal in Green Bay, but it's not like Green Bay drafted his replacement either. And we'll see no, if he I, I, I was laughing there. about this. Devondre Campbell is going to get so much money from the Miami Dolphins. He's going to get so <laughs> much money. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Great. That's one of one of those places. It's like which of the which of those piss poor teams has cap space this offseason? I'm like the Jaguars <laughs> used all theirs last offseason. Jets used theirs last offseason. Oh, it's the Dolphins' turn. It's the Dolphins' turn to have cap space and sign every available free agent this offseason. Yeah, well no one knows what in the world the Dolphins are doing down there. I mean um, <laughs> I laughed so hard when I saw they interviewed Vance Joseph. And it's not even an indictment of Vance Joseph. It's just 
Vance Joseph is the the, the mo- only time I've ever palpably seen a team quit on a coach. Like the only time I've ever seen a team physically quit on a coach, other than maybe that third and eight where they, you know, QB snuck with Joe Judge this year that went viral. But <laughs> like I, I've, I, it was the it was supposed to be the last game in in Oakland. But then Oakland played another year there. But that terrible Raiders team that was like three and eleven just dominated the Broncos, and the Broncos just totally quit on Vance Joseph. I'm like, oh, there's no way he could possibly come back. There, it's over. And so I'm amazed that the Dolphins are. I saw he was there. I saw Dayball was there, and I, yeah, I don't know what I don't know what the game plan is for Miami at this point, other than just. Hope Tua gets a better offensive line and we can evaluate him better as a quarterback, which, yeah, good luck to them. <laughs> yeah, apparently <laughs> now their second interviews are with all offensive guys, which makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, if you're going to move on from, from uh, you know, Brian Flores, who was a defensive guru. Well, also um, had four def- four offensive coordinators in three years. Yes, and people will ask, "How is it possible to have three four offensive coordinators in three years?" Because they literally had two offensive coordinators this year. We had we never knew who was calling plays, but they had two offensive coordinators this past season. I have no idea who any of them are. So yeah, I, yeah, yeah, it wasn't great. And worst off, according to Pro Football Focus, worst offensive line in sixteen years for the Miami Dolphins this year. Oh, which wow. is, but congratulations. They have a lot of cap space and a new Jarvis Landry, oh. which is not bad. Like I'm not saying being Jarvis Landry is bad, but right. if Jalen Waddle is Jarvis Landry, we've seen how that goes with an average quarterback. Jarvis Landry can only do so much to help your team if you're Miami. But well, yeah. I think Waddle brings a little more speed than Landry. And, yeah, uh, but what, what does that matter there. if Tua can't throw the ball down the field? Well, that's their challenge is to improve that offensive line, maybe re-sign Mike Giusecki, um as, <laughs> as tight end because he's he's done pretty well there. Yeah, I mean they they're gonna the Dolphins will make moves and and uh the big question mark will be just uh how um confident the new coach will be in Tua. How how confident are you in any of these head coaching jobs this offseason because I feel like all of them are pretty bad and it's rare that 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 it happens when there's so many jobs available but I don't feel like any of these jobs are actually super desirable in the NFL this year well first of all I'm sort of I don't know what it says about the candidate pool when it seems like it's taking forever for teams to decide um, on who they want. Um, I'm still I'm surprised that Brian Dayball hasn't been swept up by now. Um, I would have thought that he'd be off the board, you know, well before today. Um, and I guess he's, you know, he's linked up in Miami as one of their guys uh, and has connections to Stephen Ross, and um, you know, that's probably. A place for him. Um, I know he's linked to the Giants too, uh, with uh, the GM Shown there, who just got hired from the Bills. Um, you know, so, but uh, yeah, I mean, well, first of all, let's address the elephant in the room. Um, Sean Payton 
bailing out, knowing that you know the Saints are in salary cap jail um, and don't have any path to acquire a franchise quarterback. Right, which yeah. is also what Aaron Rodgers wants to do is bail out on a rebuild. Um, you know, I think Russell Wilson would like to get out of Seattle, even though he says he's fine staying. I believe I the most recent report was exploring his options, yeah. which is, can I find a situation better than Seattle to join? If not, I'm cool staying. Right, and it's no coincidence that Tom Brady, looking at the Bucks' salary cap situation and the whole slew of free agents they have, which you know they're not going to be able to sign like they did last year, and you know they're going to feel the cap this year. I mean, those all-in teams that try to make their runs with Breeze, um, Brady. I mean, they got one ring with Brady, and you know, but now it's catching up to them. And then Green Bay, it's caught up to Green Bay. Um, caught up to Seattle too. Seattle gave away all their draft picks and cap space over the past few years. Yeah, and now, now the they finally have due. some back of cap space at least, but. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, they've they're, you got to still. You have to think they're in a rebuild mode. So they have a number of of. Uh, you know, maybe they might not be as as far away as people think. But um, and it was just a down year. So you know, but they oh, need I'm, a bounce back yeah. year. Are you talking about Seattle? Yes. Or okay, I, I couldn't tell if it was Seattle or the Saints because I feel like both of those could be true, but. Uh, the Seattle one, yeah, I think if Russell Wilson had been healthy, they would have been the seven seed this year. And, you know, in this wild NFC, who knows what would have happened. But I, I was interested that you, you talked about Sean Payton leaving because it seemed like you, you were, you know, disappointed in Sean Payton, if I, you know, articulating it correctly. But I, I, what did you think of the Sean Payton retirement walking away from the Saints? Well, I think it's... To me, it looks obvious. I mean, if Drew Brees were still there, there's no way he'd be leaving. If the salary cap wasn't in, you know, they sacrificed a lot to try to get one more ring. And they were knocking on the door. And they also got some incredibly um, bad officiating heaped on them. Remember that Rams game with the no call on the, on the fourth down swing pass, which was so yeah. obvious to everyone that there was interference, um, which the NFL I mean, really has to correct, but that's, that's for another time, but they tried to, they, they gave us one year where they changed the pass interference rules to become challengeable. And then they got rid of it. But the, the, the stat I throw out all the time, saints won 49 games in the regular season in four years, most of any team in the history of the NFL without making a super bowl. Right. Now Peyton just said that he had there are two teams that have contacted him um, that would be interested in hiring him this year. But he said he he said that's not in my plans. That says to me the two teams that contacted him are not in the kind of shape that he wants. <laughs> they don't have a franchise quarterback, is what I, my guess is. Because more than likely. I, 
I assume Sean Payton would only come out of retirement to coach a team with one of the nine great quarterbacks in the NFL. That would be my assumption, which one of them is Arizona, by the way. I, I think Arizona proposes the best option for Sean Payton to come out of retirement if and when they move on from Cliff Kingsbury. But at the same time, I, I feel like that's kind of where he's at is I'm going to walk away for a year. The Saints the Saints are headed towards some purgatory for the next few years, but the Saints are uh, Saints are not in a position to acquire a franchise quarterback unless Kenny Pickett is going to become a superstar quarterback. And they're kind of in this purgatory right now where Sean Payton walked away from it. So, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think if Sean Payton still had, I mean, maybe Drew Brees of four years ago, Drew Brees was pretty bad last year when they finished, but if he had a, if he had Drew Brees of yesteryear, yeah, I assume he'd still be coaching the Saints. Or yeah. if he was, or if Russell Wilson guaranteed that he was coming, he'd probably still be coaching the Saints. Yeah, I, and I mean, Sean Payton to Arizona would probably have to include a Belichickian um, command of authority over the whole organization. Um. Peyton would want uh, and who knows I mean I don't think Michael Bidwell is one to a, uh, accept that uh, as a condition but he might be so frustrated another year that it could make sense to him but also then you'd have to I mean it's going to take at least a first round pick probably more maybe even two that's what Belichick got too. I mean, you know, to to land Sean Payton. Oh, but I feel like Payton's leverage in this situation is it's either that or nothing. It's like how the the Patriots gave up like a sixth round pick for or got like a sixth round pick from the Bucks for Gronk when he came out of retirement because it's like I I want to go to this team and the alternative is you get nothing for me. So I feel like the 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 value goes way down the more Sean Payton stays in retirement if he wants if they trade his rights to another team. Oh, I, I feel will, like it. I will bet right away that the minimum of him going to another team in 2023 would be a first round pick. Ooh, see, I disagree on that one. I think the value will just be. We, need, we want some sort of compensation for Sean Payton, but we don't really care what the compensation is. Oh, I don't know about that. <laughs> Especially for a team looking for a quarterback. And the, the problem with the Saints this year was they played well enough at 9-8 and eight to not be in a prime draft spot to be able to pick a quarterback. I think Pickett will be off the board. They'll have to, they'd have to trade up uh, Pickett and, and Coral. Um, probably will be off the board by then. And then I don't know if there's someone, I mean, I like Sam Howell, but I'm not sure if he's a first rant rounder. Um, yeah, I mean, it's not a deep year for quarterbacks in the draft. I no, mean, it'll probably be Jameis Winston again. Like it, it'll probably be Jameis Winston playing quarterback for the Saints next year. But yeah, that's the purgatory that teams that don't have franchise quarterbacks live in is that you have to alternate through the Jameis Winstons and Teddy Bridgewaters of the world. Yeah, and um, that's probably yeah. I think you're right, and 
I think Dennis Allen probably gets that job. I know they're interviewing Brian Flores, but I don't know why Flores would want to get in on that. Um, that's he'd be landing in a worse situation than he did when he arrived at the at, at the Dolphins. And yeah, you know, that's another guy I'm really surprised is still dangling out there because you know I thought he would have been a perfect fit for the Raiders, um, but they have since fired the BC connection um in gm mike mayock which was surprising to me um because i thought mayock did a number of great things to help turn that franchise around um but they have other ideas and now it looks like a ziggler mcdaniels gm head coach coup going heading out west to vegas um are you talking about the mcdaniels for the 49ers or the Patriots? Josh McDaniels, a Patriots oh, really? connection with Ziggler as GM and Josh McDaniels as head coach. Uh, that would be shocking because I thought McDaniels was next in line behind Belichick. I thought that was kind of the wink, wink, nod, nod agreement. You know, I mean, right. Living right here five minutes from Gillette Stadium and being surrounded by Patriots fans and pundits and, you know, um, I've not too many people here actually think that's going to happen. That Fair McDaniel's enough. is the successor to Belichick. Well, and uh, even still, you could you could present an argument to me that the Raiders' job is better than the Patriots' job, and I'd at least be willing to hear you out on that one. Like, if he leaves for a better job, I could understand that choice too. Well, that's an interesting question because uh you know Derek Carr versus Mac Jones you can start there um you know different parts of their career I mean I think it could be more promising in New England with Mac Jones in the long run in the shorter run maybe with with uh you know uh Carr in Las Vegas who had a really good year um you know and led some pretty amazing comebacks and he's a tough gritty kid uh you know, but uh, yeah that'd be a tough call i mean the way that the raiders have improved defensively with max crosby and those guys i mean i i like with how they're trending there so and the but so of the patriots uh they've they've added some really good talent with josh uche and um you know, uh, um, you know, with C.J. Jackson and on the back end, Kyle Duggar, who I think is an up-and-coming star at safety. Um, Jalen Mills was pretty good as a pickup this year. I don't know if he sticks around, but that was a good small yeah, little pickup for them. Mills wasn't quite as consistent as as they were hoping, but he's got the ability, and I think he he will make strides in year two in that system. You know, and, and Udon, um, you know, the the outside linebacker had an excellent year. Um, and I, I Matthew Udon, uh, that was a great pickup. You know, they've got those two tight ends and Henry and Smith. Um, if they get a marquee wide receiver to go with the group that they have with Jacoby Myers and, um, and Nelson Aguilar, uh, you know that that could 
do well for them, and they have a host of really good running backs with Harris and, and um, Stevenson. Yeah, I mean they've got. I'm. I would guess right now, if if if, if I were an offensive-minded head coaching candidate, I'd pick Patriots. Although, you know, if their job was open, but although then that comes with the enormity of the shoes that whoever fills Belichick's role um, mm-hmm. and the standards that he's going to leave behind. Um, it's the classic case of you want to be the guy who replaces the guy who replaced the guy. You don't want to be the guy who replaces the guy. Yeah. You want to be the, you want to be Mac Jones over Cam Newton, not Cam Newton replacing Tom Brady. Yeah, type of situation. And that's why um, I don't think they'll go in house when when Belichick retires. I think they'll go out of house with someone who they think is more most capable of handling those expectations. And and this all comes down to a question of whether Bob Kraft lets Bill Belichick pick his successor or not. This is a classic dilemma that the Patriots are going to have as the, you know, talk gets magnified well, of Belichick's retirement. I don't, I don't think, I mean, I think that Kraft will consult Belichick, but I think Kraft will have his own instincts and, you know, um, it's certainly not going to be Belichick's son. No, Steve, no, Steve. probably. So not. it's that's not going to happen. But uh, it's not going to stay in the family. But you know, I, I think that I wouldn't. It would surprise me if down the road Brian Flores comes back as a head coach at some point. Um, So this is the interesting part of me analyzing the Patriots. Because the thing I said all season, I was proven right in the end, but it was kind of a slippery slope to get there, is the Patriots have a ridiculously low upside offense that overachieved to the talent that they had on the team this year. And the thing that I was doing in saying, like, I could hear you out on telling me the Raiders' job is better than the Patriots, although... You know, I would take the Patriots over the team that hasn't made the playoffs more than twice in 20 years and has that owner that's kind of meddling in the team a bit. But the part that I find fascinating is I assume at this point the Patriots' great advantage is Bill Belichick. And if you take away that advantage, what do you have left that separates you from other teams other than the past success or the signs of success in the past. Right, Cause right. the Denver Broncos had a great four year run because they happened to get Peyton Manning and a Vaughn Miller, the number two pick and, you know, a bunch of great draft picks in the in-between and, and signing Sanders and good moves all around. They caught lightning in a bottle. And other than that, the Broncos don't have much else. Once you took away Peyton Manning and once you took away Gary Kubiak, who, you know, I think he was a pretty good coach, you know, got two, three coaching jobs in the NFL. Once you took that away, there wasn't anything left that gave them an advantage over their peers. When you don't have a quarterback, you have a pretty okay defense, but, you know, you don't have a stellar coach. You have one of these interchangeable coaches again. So that's my point with the Patriots is just, there's nothing that gives me hope for the Patriots because I don't think Mac Jones is actually that good of a quarterback. I think he's a 
he's a top 32 quarterback, but that's a low bar to hit because that would mean every team has at least a Mac Jones. And so that's the part where I look up and say, I don't know what competitive advantage the Patriots have if you take away Belichick. It's, it's been incredible that after losing that team and that offense and that quarterback and totally rebuilding their defense on the fly, the fact that they've made two playoff appearances in the last three years with, that, with those you know, piss-poor offenses, as I like to call them, is pretty remarkable. And I, I guess I assume that that's Belichick because I don't see the talent on paper, but they always overachieve to expectations. And so I guess I, I view their one competitive advantage as Belichick at this point. And maybe that's wrong, but I, the offenses have just been so average to below average over the past few years that I assume that that's something to do with coaching and schematics that keep them in the game defensively too. Like they've overperformed to their skill on defense, but we know that's Belichick because he's the smartest defensive coach in the history of football. Yeah. Um, Belichick's advantage didn't help him this year down the stretch after the bye week. They kind of, they and the Cardinals, uh, you know, suffered a similar um, drop-off after the bye. They both had late buys. When they went into the bye, they both were sitting in the one seed, uh, being chased by a division rival. They were both wound up losing to their division rivals in the Rams and the Bills and losing the division to the division rivals, and then both had to wind up playing their division rivals in round one of the playoffs at their division rivals stadium where both teams got wonked. Hmm. Um, and that really surprised me. So if Belichick had to endure that with all the strategic game planning that he does, um, but he said something very interesting today um, or that was quoted today in the Boston globe. And I, I really um, subscribe to this. He said the two most important things about a quarterback are one accuracy to decision-making. And I think that's a hundred percent correct. Um, and I would just add three durability um, because obviously that's a fast. Some people like Tom Brady's been invincible. I Me mean, had the one year with a knee injury. Otherwise he's been, um, healthy enough to play even through injuries and still play at the highest level imaginable. Um, but, uh, but I mean, in Mac Jones, I think, I think they've got a player who c can check both of those boxes. So, I mean, I think the big arm and legs is, is great. Like a Josh Allen, he's tremendous. No, no doubt in Mahomes and, you know, and, all that and Joe Burrow, uh, all and Justin Herbert, um, Dak Prescott, right? But and Dak Prescott, but I think that you know sometimes the less splashier, more reliable decision maker who's accurate ends up winning. Because let's face it, back in the day, I mean, Tom Brady was a sixth round pick because his fastball didn't. Didn't impress anyone, and, uh, and he he didn't come into the league with one of those classic John Elway arms, and uh, 
but he had the two things that Belichick is talking about um, with accuracy and with decision making. And if you can do those two things, um, you know, uh, it can take you a long way. Com- combine that with a good running game and a stout defense, and that's a formula for winning. If you get you know, accuracy and good decision-making out of your quarterback, you can run the football with, with consistent effectiveness, and you can stop the run and dog the pass the way good defenses do. Chances are you can go a long way um, each year and, and at any time. So, yeah, I mean, it was just so surprising to me that – Belichick's team struggled as much as it did down the stretch. But then it doesn't surprise me from the flip end of he still had a rookie quarterback. You know, they too had some some tough injuries, particularly uh, on defense. They had some injuries. And also, I think that the lineback- inside linebacking play, I mean, Hightower's kind of on his last legs. Um I think there were some issues there that that uh, prevented the Patriots from stopping the run the way they normally. They got kind of they got hammered on by the Colts and other teams in the running game, and you know. So and that's not classic. That, that's not typical of Belichickian defenses. And I think that the game kind of changed right in front of us because Tom Brady for all of the talk about him being at, like he changed the game by figuring out short field accuracy. You can never get hit for 10 years. Tom Brady did have all of the tools that we talk about with a Mahomes, a Josh Allen or a Justin Herbert, except he couldn't run the ball. But again, that's a modern, it's a change in the sport where Patrick Mahomes is the leading rusher in such a game. So, you know, Tom Brady didn't need to be that back then. So the point there was like, I, I think Belichick has had the track record of success with those types of quarterbacks. And so those are the types of quarterbacks he looks for. He tried it with Cam Newton, of course. Like, they totally changed their offense right. to play around Cam Newton. Well, Cam, like he, had, uh, Cam had neither the consistent yeah. accuracy or the decision-making. And they were still successful with Cam at quarterback relative to the roster that they had last year. Like they still yeah. out, they still outperformed what they should have last year. I think it's just Belichick's had the success with uh, Brady and Garoppolo that I think he looks at that and says, though that's the type of quarterback that I can turn into yes. a top 10 quarterback. But I feel like that's only a Bill Belichick thing. I think when everyone else tries to do that, it ends up flopping because they don't have the, the plan or acumen of a Bill Belichick. Well, now, if you if you gave Bill Belichick a one of these nine amazing quarterbacks, I think Bill Belichick would change his tune there. But at the same time, I think he's had that success with Brady and Garoppolo being the two prototypes that he's molded, that he wants to keep building that prototype because he knows he can make he specifically can make it work. Yeah, well, also look at Sean Payton with Drew Brees. I mean, that's um, – we can go full circle back to Sean Payton because that's been the hallmark of Payton's offenses is accuracy from the quarterback position and excellent decision-making. So, um, And that's where Jameis Winston 
in both cases needs to improve. Um, and it's possible that he might, um, people have been saying you can't teach accuracy. Well, hello, Josh Allen. Um, yeah, I don't believe that when people say you can't teach accuracy. It's just that no one's very good at it because people didn't have the, the science before. Right, and people said that about Lamar, too. But Lamar, Lamar's pretty accurate these days. Mm-hmm. Um, way more than I think some people ever thought. Yeah, um, I think people kind of stereotyped Lamar Jackson a bit when he was coming out. And they said, well, he's a running quarterback, therefore he can't throw it. And then he didn't throw it as much statistically because he doesn't need to throw the ball for 5,000 yards when he can also right. run for 1,000. So, yeah, I think people stereotype Lamar Jackson and put him in a box of you're either this or this when it's like, no, Lamar Jackson can do both. Lamar Jackson can be an amazing quarterback from the pocket with you know, a solid wide receiver core and also a thousand yard rusher every single year at the quarterback position, which by the way, Josh Allen could do that too. And they just they don't just want don't to destroy want. his body right. by making him run the ball, you know, 300 times a year or whatever it is. Josh Allen could do the same things Lamar Jackson does. They just choose to protect the body by not having him take those Cam Newton type hits. Yeah. They picked their spots with him, but he sure ran him a lot versus the Chiefs. Exactly. Because it was a one-game winner-go-home, they right. said, you can take the hits. We, we'll protect the body over 17 games. <laughs> but when it comes down to one game, Devin Singletary, you can get the hell out of here because you're not good enough to be a starting running back. We'll make Josh Allen our starting running back. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah um, I'm with you there. So, yeah. Uh, you know, I would add to the quarterback mix's competitiveness. Mm-hmm. And because there have been there's sometimes competitiveness can um, overcome some of the other, you know, like, yeah, that's the thing about Patrick Mahomes that I think is so special is that his competitive fire is just non pari, as they say, uh, unparalleled. Did you see the um did you see the the heartbeat monitor that the the tracking company released after the the Bills Chiefs game where Patrick Mahomes' heart rate did not peak when he was on the field it only peaked when Josh Allen threw the touchdown passes while he was watching on the bench Oh wow that they they could track Mahomes' heart rate with the all the the tracking things that they have in the shoulder pads and they figured out Nope, he stayed pretty consistent while he was on the field. It was only when Josh Allen was on the field that his heart rate began to spike. <laughs> yeah. Pretty funny when I saw uh, that. The, I mean, it was just unbelievable how Mahomes knew exactly what to do with 13 seconds. Yep. And uh, we didn't talk about this game at all, but I assume the Kansas City Chiefs will win and go to their third straight Super Bowl. That's my assumption going into the conference championship weekend. So, yeah, shout out to the Kansas City Chiefs. We we spent this talking about the Patriots and the Cardinals and the Saints and the Jaguars. But, yeah, Kansas City Chiefs kind of just breaking the sport by being more dominant over the last four years than any four-year stretch in my lifetime. Yeah, well, they better defend those uh... – Bengal receivers because those guys, as they say on the PGA tour, these guys are good. Yes. Yes, they are. Yes. Uh, and to the, to the point with the, the saints, the last thing that I was circling back around to is 
I'll never know whether Sean Payton's offenses were perfect for Drew Brees or if because he had Drew Brees, Sean Payton built those offenses. It's, it's a combination of both in some ways because Drew Brees was always a great quarterback, even with the Chargers. It's just interesting to see how that, wor- how that dynamic worked out over 15 years and how Sean, we know Sean Payton's a Hall of Fame coach and we know Drew Brees is a Hall of Fame quarterback. It's just those two coming together at the exact same time produced a Hall of Fame worthy combination for the Saints that is now over. And like, you know, there's no shame. They got every last drop out of Drew Brees that they could. And then Sean Payton decided to walk away. They got every drop out of it they possibly could. And it was a hugely successful 15 years. And only, I think, four or five times in the last, four or five times in the last 20 years, have we had a Hall of Fame coach and Hall of Fame quarterback play together at the same time? Whether it's Manny, Manning and Dungy, and who else are we thinking of? Roethlisberger and Tomlin. Um, Brady and Belichick. Brady Belichick, Mahomes, Andy Reid. Maybe we're watching it with Lamar and John Harbaugh. John Harbaugh is kind of confusing, so I don't know about that. John Harbaugh is kind of on the precipice of great coach. So, yeah, only when those perfect, um, only when that perfect combination comes together. Do- Pete Carroll and. Uh- Russell Wilson. Yep. Pete Carroll, Russell Wilson, too. They, they had, I mean, I don't know if Pete Carroll's going to get into the NFL Hall of Fame, but he's got a Hall of Fame, one of the greatest coaches. It's semantics. So Pete Carroll's one of the great coaches in the history of football. That's, I mean, it happens every now and then. And those are the teams that end up running the sport for periods of the last 20 years. Yeah, good points. Yeah, it's only when that perfect combination comes together that things work out. It's too bad Aaron Rodgers never got a Hall of Fame head coach. The, the idea of coaching Aaron Rodgers never attracted a Hall of Fame coach. But well, uh, McNulty is no slouch. <laughs> um, no, Mike, Mike McCarthy is no slouch here. Mike McCarthy with a wonderful coaching career, yes. <laughs> Hall of Fame worthy. Candidates. Yeah, it's interesting to me that Dallas was sticking with him, but that may be your landing spot for uh, Peyton in 2023 if the Cowboy, if McCarthy's doesn't have a really fine year. I mean, I was um, talking about it this week is if, if you're picking the teams that have a franchise quarterback or like, you know, one of the nine great quarterbacks in the NFL and don't have a coach that's already secure in their job. Looks like the chargers, the Cardinals and the Cowboys. If you had to pick between those three, I'd pick the Arizona Cardinals. If I were Sean Payton and I had my choice between those three quarterbacks and those three jobs, I'd want the Arizona Cardinals job. Wow. That's I'm impressed. That would be um, my pick. Maybe these Red Rain podcasts are rubbing off on you a little bit. Possibly, but I'm also a, a big Kyler Murray fan, and also the Cowboys are in salary cap jail also. So I would uh, I would prefer the Cardinals and the flexibility of that situation if I were Peyton. And also, Dean Spanos, I hate you. So, you know, I'm not going to give Dean Spanos the credit of saying his organization is well-run, even though they have a franchise quarterback. Yeah, I think Peyton back at the Combine when Murray was 
um, Murray's combine in 2019. He said some very curious things about Kyler Murray. Um, well, I will. Uh, I will say that Peyton would be dumb to not want to coach Kyler Murray because Kyler Murray is going to be amazing for the next ten years, barring injury. Yeah, that'd be fascinating. Uh, you know, to see if that were ever, you know, come to fruition. Um, Although I'm not giving up on Cliff Kingsbury because I think if if uh, if kick if they can add a if they can give Kyler his uh, you know I don't think that DeAndre Hopkins you know the the, the Cardinals need an, a wide receiver opposite Hopkins to threaten um, the safeties and be a big time producer. Uh, um, on the other side, and if if they can get a player like that, um, then uh, and then keep Zach Ertz a tight end and have a viable tight end, that could be uh, a springboard for Kyler. He needs a uh, he needs a big time player opposite Hopkins, and uh, Hopkins, as good as he is, uh, he's not a. He's not a deep threat, per se. I mean, he's cagey. You can get a step, and you can drop tight window passes in on him. But, uh, um, but if you get, I mean, if Jamar Chase was on the Cardinals, oh my goodness! Um, you know, <laughs> I, I talked to you about it on Red Rain. Go discount Jamar Chase with Mike Williams and give him give him forty eight million dollars and. Let him go to work on the deep routes. Oh, that would be fantastic if the Cardinals could find the cap space to do that. And there are some other uh, in- intriguing um, guys out there, one of which uh, I think if he can stay healthy, DJ Chark um, could be a big-time uh, player. Um, the classic wide receiver, too, which is a joke right. that I made for years, which is right. Jaguars, as soon as you admit DJ Chark is not a wide receiver one, the better off you're going to be. So right. bring right. in the classic wide receiver, <clears throat> two to play for across DeAndre Hopkins. Yeah. <clears throat> I also kind of like, uh, as a sleeper, Marquez Valdez-Scantling um, as a, as a uh, deep threat wide receiver, too. Um, that would be an interesting addition, and there are a number of players in this draft, wide receivers like Drake Jackson from USC, like Traylon Burks from um, Arkansas, who would be immediate uh, system fits for the Cardinals opposite Hopkins. Um, oh, those guys have size and speed and versatility. Um <clears throat> Yeah, I mean, there's some, there are some options out there. It'll be interesting to see what the Cardinals do. I don't see them um, investing in AJ Green again. Um, Green had his moments, and you know he's productive at times, but uh, down the stretch he kind of faltered, and there was some kind of there was a bit of a disconnect um, between Kyler and Green at times that um, <clears throat> kind of. Uh, made the difference between winning and losing in a, in a couple games like the Green Bay game. Um, and you know, I, I think at his age, I think I think 
Green gave as much as he could. He surprised me in that there were certain aspects of his play that um, as a experienced wide receiver and potential Hall of Famer, I was surprised he doesn't use his body better in posting up on players and, and he lets uh, corners um, cross his face on out routes and you know, there are kind of awareness things like that 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 I thought um, you know a, a player of his size and experience should have been able to avoid, but um, <clears throat> but unfortunately uh, that came up all too often. And then uh, you know, I think it was a good investment on the Cardinals' part. I think they got a lot out of it, uh, but I don't see that as um, that that happening beyond this year. And now they've got it they've got to do something at that other spot. And, and um, I think they got to bring more of a speed element opposite Hopkins anyway. And they got that with Rondale Moore, who they're going to have to use more as a traditional slot wide receiver. They kind of used him as a gimmick player most of the time. Um, but now next year, they really got to move him all over the field and um, use his speed to their advantage, not just in, you know, short, um, jet sweeps and and um, <clears throat> quick uh, bubble screens and um, <clears throat> you know quick slants and stuff like that. They're, they're going to need to get him on crossers and digs and corner routes. And um, if they do that and they get a, a a real talent opposite Hopkins, wow! Because uh, I do think they're going to resign James Conner. And I do think they're going to resign Zach Ertz. I think those are the two priorities on offense. I think they would like to resign Chase Edmonds to keep that one-two punch going. Um, and I think that's possible, depending on how they can work the cap. But uh, you know, they've, like you said, there's some pieces there that are very intriguing, and, and um, there's talent uh, um, that can you know, be impressive if it's maximized and, you know, Sean Payton's shown, um, you know, a great ability. What I love about his offenses is the play actions and the ability to strike between that intermediate and deep area. His passing game has typically been brilliant. I mean, they, you know, with, with Breeze, they were just so many times, Michael Thomas would get the ball on a, on a corner route, you know, and, um, chunk yard passing plays. That, and then they're really good when you get down, at the, they get down with the 25 yard line, throwing um, posts for touchdowns, posts and corners and, um, <clears throat> and uh, wheel routes and, they're really good at that. I mean, he's Peyton's a genius at um, exploiting defenses in the intermediate to deep area um, in ways that I've rarely seen. So, you know, um, wherever he goes in a year's time, maybe he goes into the booth and never comes out like John Madden. Um, Cause I think that's probably where he's headed next year. You know, that's a possibility too, but whoever you and I can make a gentleman's bet um, that, uh, you know, I think that whoever trades for, for um, Sean Payton is going to have to 
give up at least a first round pick and probably probably more. Yeah, I disagree on that one. And we'll we'll have lots of chance in the draft season to do mocks to talk about how all of this will play out once we get to the NFL draft, of course. But yeah, the Sean the Sean Payton part that I find interesting is Andy Reid had to trade one pick ahead of him to get Patrick Mahomes. So how different would this all have been if Sean Payton had, you know, Sean Payton's been leaking out that he liked Patrick Mahomes in the draft. You know, I don't know what actually was true and what's not, but if Mahomes, if they had stuck to their guns and, you know, maybe the Chiefs don't trade ahead of him, how different the NFL would look if Patrick Mahomes had fallen that one pick to the Saints and the Saints had built that dynasty from, you know, Sean Payton getting that coach again. And then we're looking at Sean Payton as one of the great coaches in the history of the NFL with and we're 30 not looking years at of quarterback Sean, play. Sean Payton bailing ship and taking a year off. <laughs> yep. But that's what happens when you lose the quarterback. I mean, I think Mike Tomlin's next on that list to jump ship and take a year off just because it's, it's going to get rough out there. It's going to get rough r- r- running that team. But, uh, oh, man. Yeah, that's, no, now there's a guy who's a lifer. I mean, I mean, it, the, it doesn't mean he has to go coach somewhere else. It just means the, Mike Tomlin could be close uh, to retirement age. I never would see him taking a year off. First of all, he's a defensive guy, so he'll think that his def- he can compensate for not having a a Pro Bowl quarterback by having great defense and and having T.J. Watt. That makes your life infinite. Exactly, easier. and then. So you got that going for you, and then they're going to make a move at quarterback. Uh, I would like to retract what I just said because I just found out Mike Tomlin is still in his 40s, which yeah. is insane. Right. Um, I thought Mike Tomlin was the same age as Sean Payton. He's 49 years old. Jesus Christ, Mike Tomlin. That dude's had a Hall of yeah. Fame career by 49. That's insane. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, yep. no, he'll stay. He'll stay in Pittsburgh, even if they have some six and ten seasons coming up here. He'll stay in Pittsburgh. Jesus Christ, Mike yep. Tomlin. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think it's just admirable of the Steelers to they really heavily believe in in continuity at the head coaching position, and they're not apt. I don't know knee, how they knee, did it. Knee jerk and want to switch coaches. I mean. Look at this coaching carousel this year. I mean, like you said, over the last two years, there have been more than half the teams. Yeah. I mean, in the last three years, new head coaches. Sure. And at I least. think part of it is this you know, everybody wants their Sean McVay, their Mike Shanahan. Um, and, you know, they see that kind of stuff going on, you know. And are, are hoping there are other guys out there like that. Um, you're seeing a drop off too of defensive-minded head coaches, um, because you know, yesterday on on NFL Live, I thought they did a really good analysis of um, who was the defensive coach that was just hired. Uh, Oh, Eberflus. Eberflus, right. Yeah, great and name, great said, coach name. <laughs> right. It's only a great hire if he gets the right kind of offensive coordinator to develop Justin Fields. Um, and that's a big if. And that's the problem is, as people have seen, that 
like what's going to be the problem with the Bills and Brian Dayball is when you get a guy who grooms your quarterback and is really successful and takes the offense to to uh, top level. Bye bye. You either have to make the tough decision to promote him to head coach and fire your head coach. Although, let me ask you about this. I've always thought that eventually NFL teams would have co-head coaches that the ones that would be willing to pay head coach money to the offensive guy and the defensive guy. I'm like a Jerry Jones would do that, for example, Mm -hmm. which he's kind of doing with Dan Quinn. I mean, he's paying him. I mean, Quinn just said he's coming back. Well, I bet he had a little envelope in his, uh, in his mailbox from Jerry. And the Broncos didn't hire him either, which was the job I know he was connected to. Right. But there were other jobs too. He was connected to, and he just pulled his name out of the hat. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, he had, he had some incentives more than just wanting to go back to the Cowboys. Uh, I think that he, you know, Jerry's taking care of him, but I could see that down the road is, Teams realizing, well, we don't want to lose this. Once you get a, a great coordinator, you don't want to lose them. And that continuity can be so important. So if if on one side of the ball you're always doing a coaching carousel, a revolving door of coordinators that come in because the good ones you get leave and go be head coaches elsewhere, you know, in, in order to prevent that, you could – you know, and everybody says, oh, you just need to have one head coach who's the voice. And I, I don't see why you can't have two head coaches who are the voices. Um, I would say because when push comes to shove, someone has to be a decision maker. So there needs to be a clear line of who is the decision maker between the two. Because right. that is, that's important when push comes to shove. The, the point I would argue there, which I think you're correct, I think that the Buffalo Bills should pay whatever to keep that continuity with Brian Dayball for the time being. Right. The part I would argue is there aren't enough good head coaches in the NFL. In fact, there's a shortage of quality head coaches in the NFL. Therefore, if coaches are interchangeable, coordinators are probably even more interchangeable because coordinators are the larger pool by which coaches end up usually getting hired. I mean, sometimes college coaches get hired as well. But I'd say that there's just not enough that aren't interchangeable. Now, if you're... You know, if you're a team like the Panthers that has to hire Ben McAdoo because nobody wants to take your job, yeah, you don't even have a good coordinator. But I think yeah. that coordinators are so interchangeable in and dependent on the players around them that right. it's rare that you find even the one that is, you know, totally you, you can't let them walk away because. Right. The two that I point to are Dayball and Leftwich. In 2011, Brian Dayball was the offensive coordinator of the worst offense in the NFL with the Miami Dolphins and was always regarded for years as the one Belichick assistant that was never good. (laughs) Like that was the joke on him for years and years and years. And then he gets Josh Allen and he's fast-tracked to a head coaching candidacy because, you know, there's not enough good head coaches. And the other point I go to is Leftwich. Leftwich for 10 games once Mike McCoy got fired was the coordinator of the worst offense in the NFL 
three years later gets Tom Brady two top 10 offenses and he's fast tracked to a head coaching job. And so it feels like there's already not enough good head coaches in the NFL because there's 32 jobs that have to be filled, but not 32 coaches that give teams a competitive advantage. Like I, I laugh at the fact that now Frank Reich has both of his coordinators as NFL head coaches, but Andy Reid's had the same staff together for the past four years. Right. I, I like, there's just not enough good head coaches where, you know, Sirianni, the offensive coordinator of the Colts and Eberflus, the defensive coordinator of the Colts are getting jobs when, yeah, the Colts have had great defenses and pretty good offenses, but they haven't really done anything in their time with the Colts in terms of like measurable success. So I think, I think there's just not enough good coordinators that are not interchangeable. I think that's probably the part that I'd point to now. There's a there's three or four I can point to right now who I feel like I would pay whatever it takes to keep continuity together. But like even the Baltimore Ravens fired Wink Martindale after giving him an extension like last year and hired McDonald from Michigan, who was there, you know, before going to Michigan for right. one year. So I just feel like their coordinators, uh, coaches are interchangeable in the NFL. And so coordinators themselves are also kind of interchangeable. Yeah, well, <laughs> I mean, back to your original statement of someone has to make a decision. Well, I don't – it's pretty easy. The offensive coach makes the decisions on offensive decisions and the defensive coach makes the decision on defensive. Oh, um, schematically, schematically, I think that works. I just think, like, from a leadership point of view, is that there has to be someone who – takes on the responsibility i was again i was reading that belichick book one time where it's like um during the i think it was the 2010 maybe earlier maybe it was the early patriots run but their quarterback coach died unexpectedly during training camp and so all of a sudden like they didn't have a quarterback coach and so belichick became the quarterback coach for a season and you know if a if a scandal breaks or if there's a story Belichick would have to put whatever he was doing aside to go work on that. Just from a leadership standpoint of when push comes to shove, who assumes the responsibility of the day-to-day stuff? Who assumes the responsibility of a player having a mental breakdown? Who is responsible for a player who's broken their leg and now they need to, you know, take care of whatever head coaching responsibilities or things like that. I think there needs to be someone that they can point to and say, when, when um what's it called when i'm trying to think of a good way to phrase it when push comes to shove who's the person who assumes responsibility when no one else is assuming the responsibility who is the person who you can point to and say they assume the responsibility maybe sometimes it'll be one person and sometimes another but i think it can be a team effort i really do and that's what huddles are for and uh i'm you know and to a player on your side of the ball, uh, you know, or filling in for a coach on your side of the ball. You know, the Cardinals do an interesting thing is their um, special teams coordinator, Jeff Rogers, is uh, an assistant head coach, and he um, is like the game manager on the sidelines for Cliff mm-hmm. and and for the, for the defense. He's the one who... Um, makes the suggestions for the key decisions, uh, you know, and, and then of course with special teams too, whether to fake a punt and throw a pass that is a helmet catch 
all the way down to the ground. <laughs> that catch was by Jonathan Ward was unbelievable. Um, but I mean, there are ways to to unif- you know, sort of share responsibilities and and uh, cater to the coaches' strengths and what they do best. And um, yeah, you know, I think that today that is the, true. the coordinators think, yeah. both get interviewed anyway. So it's not like all you're hearing is from the head coach and like back in the old Belichick days where his coaches never talked, only he did. Um, Today you get coordinators up there talking. So, yeah, I mean, I just think some rich owner is going to say, I want the best at both, uh, all three coordinator spots and I'm willing to pay for it. Because also, when you're thinking you're paying these superstars all these millions of dollars, and the coaches don't get nearly as much, um, you know, to pay the money to make sure your coaching is the way that you want it, um, and you can secure it down, lock it down. Is you know, no. one of the one of the things that I think is true about that is it would require open and transparent communication and a great working relationship between those two people. Yes, they, it would. It would require them to to have a strong working relationship in a yes. sport that often you have people who go to, you know, football is a very individualistic, like you break into groups type of thing where often, you know, position coaches are sometimes the leaders of certain units of the team and the head coach yeah. is kind of a manager in some cases. Yeah. So I would agree with you that it would require a level of open, transparent, working, strong working relationship that you know, we generally lack in society, but, you know, it's easy enough to do with the right people willing to put in the work to care and be responsible for the people who they oversee. I think to that point, it could definitely work out and take the burden of responsibility off of one person. I know Belichick, one of the underrated successes of the Patriot dynasty is, I believe his name is Ernie Adams, who is basically Belichick's. Oh, he did? Yeah. Wow. Last I did not year. know that. Yeah. Yeah. And that was one of the big things was Ernie was always Belichick's kind of number two guy, but was never interested in, you know, going to work in other teams or undermine Belichick's authority or whatever it was. And that I think that probably is one of those things that yeah. I'm sure exists more often and we just don't hear about those people. Like, I'm sure there are people like that in a lot of places that are successful. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Yep. So who you got this weekend? Uh, I'm going Chiefs, and I am going Rams. No confidence. No confidence in the Rams, but I'm going to pick the Rams to win because they just have a better team. So, And I'm, going, take, I'm going Oppo. I want going... Bengals, and I want 49ers. Gosh. I got emotional after that Chiefs win, so I, I think I, I think I don't want the Chiefs. I want good things to happen to the Chiefs. They deserve it because well, they've they've been remarkably unlucky. The Chiefs, yeah, have been unlucky over the, over the past four years. Yeah, they've been pretty unlucky given how dominant they got a ring, been. man. How, how yeah. unlucky is that? Oh, because they should have three and four years. Kansas oh, City. Oh, I did. don't know about that. Kansas, I don't think their I, defense was ever that strong enough. I think it was good enough. I mean, they, uh, they barely. went 14-1 and one with not a great defense last year. I mean, Spagnola has done a good job settling it down over there, but they still are flawed 
Uh, but, Case in point, if they but, win a coin toss against the Patriots, they probably do <laughs> win two championships. Could be. Yeah, they probably they probably lose last year still in, to the Bucks, but right. Know, they, I, I, if that's I just, this year, then ugh, you know. Um, I just I don't know. I, I no, it, it I, it's me going out on a limb and trying to be the appreciate the Chiefs greatness guy because I I feel confident saying in my lifetime. You could pick any four-year stretch the Patriots had. I don't think any of those four years have been as dominant as the Kansas City Chiefs have been over the last four years. Yeah. Um, well, on offense for sure, and then um, you know, I the, the I just want whoever wins the AFC to win it all. I don't want either the Rams or the 49ers <laughs> to get that glory, but. Um, totally understandable. So if it's Chiefs and they have the best chance to win it all, I'm I'm all in favor of that. But uh, but yeah, I mean, this Bengals team really is fascinating to me, and I love the underdog and their classic. And I love Joe Burrow this week. Asked about the crowd noise at, at Arrowhead and saying like, "Yeah, it'll be like a regular SEC game." Um, <laughs> that is just so awesome. You know, only it's SEC games you get like forty thousand more uh, yeah. in the in the stands. You know, so I, I just love it. There's something about him that's just, just really appealing, and and their team and the their you know the classic underdogs. Um, you know, so I'm really excited about that. But then I'm fascinated with the Rams and 49ers and and the 49ers' recent dominance over them. Um, and seeing that play out again is really fascinating to me. Uh, but I, I, the Rams are so all in this year. I don't want them to get it. Yeah, <laughs> no, know, the Rams are going to be in an interesting. You place. know, be like the Saints in two years with McVay taking a year off. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I don't want to. I don't want to ruin my Rams eulogy that I have prepared. Win or lose, but <laughs> I'm. Uh, I'm basically writing. I'm, I'm dabbling in writing a bit in how fascinated I am by this Rams three year run where right they they tore the entire thing to the ground. Like the thing we don't talk about a lot is they went to the Super Bowl with seventy five percent of Jeff Fisher's players. And they've totally, like, with the only constants being Aaron Donald and Sean McVay, they've torn the and, entire roster to the ground and built up a Super Bowl team possibly again. Well, I find that Cooper so Cup and Robert Woods. Oh, yes. But I, I discount Cooper Cup only because Cooper Cup tore his ACL during the Super Bowl season that they had in 2018, and he was a McVay pick. So I guess I kind of count that as like being post whatever because it's a, it's a, you know, it's, it's nuanced, but it sounds, you're a writer. It sounds better in writing when you say with only Aaron Donald and Sean McVay as the foundation, the Rams rebuilt an entire Super Bowl champion. It sounds better that way than well with also Robert Woods and also Cooper Cup and also Andrew Whitworth. Like it's, it's better sounding when you put it. Like they've pretty much built the entire thing back up from scratch. Right, they did, and McVeigh hit it at the right time, right place, right time, right formula, and, and having the greatest physical specimen to ever play the sport <laughs> helps right. as a foundation. And now making the bold move at quarterback, 
um, to go from Goff to Stafford. Um, we'll, we'll, that's the fascination is can they take it all the way? Yeah, and win or lose, I still think it's a fascinating story to write from my point of view because I think this would be a great documentary to do one day, I feel like. This would be an amazing story of this five-year run for the Rams because you know how we talked about the coaching hire and I don't think any of the jobs are really that great this off season. Like everyone does fire coaches in the hopes that they can find a Sean McVay because think of how that totally changed the Rams organization. They missed the playoffs 13 consecutive seasons, hire Sean McVay, make the playoffs four out of five years and possibly on the precipice of two Super Bowls. Right. Is that, you know, the, the best way to succeed, I guess, as much as we, you know, dump on everyone for saying everyone just wants to find the next Sean McVay is like, well, maybe the best strategy for winning a championship is to find the next Sean McVay. Agreed. <laughs> getting completely lucky. And if you don't have that, if you don't have Sean McVay, just tear it all down and try again. And I don't know. It's, it seems like a, a painful cycle if you go through 10 coaches without hitting on Sean McVay. But the Rams were a pretty poorly run organization before McVay got there and they got lightning in a bottle of being able to get him the same way I talk about Clemson getting lightning in a bottle of hiring Dabo Swinney. Cause everyone was pissed when they hired Dabo Swinney back in 2009 and it ended up being an amazing coach or I'd say the best coaching hire of the last non Saban 20 years. Like it's sometimes you just get lucky like that and everyone wants to catch with that lightning in a bottle so it can totally turn their team around. Yeah. Well, what's unique about McVeigh is at his age is he combines the expertise X and O's with the dynamic persona and gravitas of a head coach, even at such in a precocious state. I mean, you know, you, you love hearing the guy talk. I mean, he's a, you know, I, I jump out of my chair to play for him. I would, he's just, um, got such energy and bounce and enthusiasm, but also, um, a discerning way of critiquing, um, and understanding the nuances of the game and what it takes to win. And, you know, as compared to Cliff Kingsbury, who I think has the has similar um, qualities as a play caller, and is uh, crafty and and creative in that regard. But Cliff is more understated, like a Belichick. Um, he internalizes things more. He's not a a bouncy guy on the sidelines um, the way McVeigh is, and. Um, but it doesn't mean that he's not as intense or competitive. It just, you know, some teams need that to feed off their coach's energy. And McVay brings it, brings that um, in full array virtually every game. And, and I don't want to, you know, I don't want to ruin the greater story that I want to talk about with this team as we go towards Super Bowl week. But at the same time, McVay reminds me a lot of Mike Tomlin. And the way, not necessarily in coaching style or philosophy, but in the way that we've talked about Mike Tomlin as a coach over the last 10 years where, you know, commands the respect of his locker room and keeps pieces together while also being 
you know, slightly having a slight competitive advantage because he's just a little bit smarter than the people he's going up against. He's studied the game across 20 years with a refined craft and also is a fantastic leader. It, it reminds me of the way we've talked about him over the last 10 years, which is all I remember because, you know, I was... I was eight years old when the Steelers' Santonio Holmes touchdown in the end zone happened. So there's only so much I can recall from the early Mike Tomlin years. But it it reminds me of the way during those Killer Bees teams that we talked about Mike Tomlin and how we've done so in the past three years when he wins nine games with Duck Hodges or makes the playoffs this year with Big Ben being absolutely cooked and all of that stuff. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good analogy from a, the persona side and, you know, giving the team a competitive advantage. And that's what it is. It's so, so often the difference um, is the competitive advantages that co- coaches can provide the players, and the depth um, and quality of preparation that teams have. And these days you really need a lot of that from your own players too. And, um, you know, when you get the right players who are bought in that way, um, can take you a long way. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think I think Brandon Staley in uh, with the Chargers has a mix of that going too. Um, once he gets his defense set, which you know he will, um, that could be a tough team, and you know. Uh, He's he's a young gun um, for hire that uh, I think has a lot of ability. He's he showed some, you know, growing pains this year, but but I think he's got the comportment and the makeup to do that. Uh, and interestingly, both he and McVeigh were on the same staff last year. Mm-hmm. Yep, I. I mean, I, I, it's so hard because I don't know how to measure coaches in one small sample sizes like Staley's had, but two, when they inherit the franchise quarterback, because Staley got, you know, I could argue the best coaching job of the last three years. We talked about how there's been like 18 head coaching openings in the NFL. I think Staley might have gotten the best of them in anyone yeah. going through the hiring process. So it's hard for me to do the evaluation without, you know, three or four years of sample size. Like, well, I guess five years now with McVay, but last year I was willing to dub Sean McVay a genius coach or yeah. one of these amazing coaches. So, you know, four years of sample size helps this year, making the Super Bowl would just only magnify that for me. Cause I, I don't understand how that happened. Like the Rams, how the Rams have done this is incredible. How the 49ers have done it is just bonkers. Like that one just feels like they just lucked into playing the Packers in the snow, but I, how the Rams have done it really fascinates me. And I guess I'm hoping they win so I can spend two weeks talking about how incredible this is leading up to the Super Bowl. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, enjoy the games. You got your guys. I got my guys. Yeah. See what happens. Hopefully, I mean, it's going to be hard to top the games from last week. But no, I don't. I don't think that one's possible. I don't. I don't think it's possible to top last right. week's games. But but who knows? I mean, uh, this has uh, been really exciting football and quality football with, uh, you know, despite all the variables. Uh, I think the NFL. 
can give itself a pat on the back for what has been really exciting season. Yep. We are headed towards, I guess we talked about this earlier in the week, the idea of the golden age of football, but I don't know whether that's, uh, I don't know whether that's just me because it's the prime of my life or if that's, you know, actually the content going on here, but feels like the prime of football. I'm sure well, you, you, you would have a different answer, of course. Well, but. no, I don't think there's ever been a time where, see, I think I made this analogy just as Tiger Woods inspired a whole generation of young, brilliant golfers and set the bar for that type of excellence, so has Tom Brady. With And Brady's played long enough to have this young generation come in, which mm-hmm. is, you know, I mean, wow. I mean, think of what football looks like for the next, you know, more than a decade with these brilliant young quarterbacks. Um, and so many of them, uh, you know, right on down the line, there's got to be 10 of them. I mean, uh, I can give you 10 of them for sure. I mean, one of them, one of them's Tom Brady, which I don't know if he's going to be around for the next decade, but I can give you 10 of them. He's not the young ones. It's the young ones that are, you know, so compelling. I mean, you got, I got six of them in the AFC. I know that I got Mahomes, Allen, Lamar. Uh, Justin Herbert, Joe Burrow, Deshaun Watson, and then in the NFC, Kyla Murray, Dak Prescott. I think I'm forgetting one. I think I include Aaron Rodgers in there, but Aaron Rodgers is an older man at this point. Um, yeah. yeah, maybe Trevor Lawrence. Maybe Trevor Lawrence. One of those. One of those 21 quarterbacks, 2021 class quarterbacks, maybe ends up having something magical happen. Maybe, maybe one of them gets lucky. Yeah, and I think the way Zach Wilson played down the stretch, he might be knocking on the door sometime soon as well. And and Tua, um, Tua. We none of us know about Trey Lance, but the 49ers feel like. And then Trey Lance, and then Justin Fields. Uh, yeah, I mean there, there is considerable talent out there, and be interested to see how Jordan Love does. Um, oh, and, I forgot about him. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's right. <laughs> in Green Bay, if given the chance. So, I mean, but the league is just loaded with these star young quarterbacks, and and uh, very exciting to see what happens with them, and makes for great football. I mean, we saw the these Josh Allen, Patrick Mahomes duels are going to be epic going forward, and throw Burrow into with, with both of those. Um, I'll throw guys, Lamar in there too. Throw Lamar, throw um, Herbert in there. Anytime we're going to have two, you know, and Herbert and Mahomes are in the same division. Um, and then next year in their division might be Aaron Rodgers um, with uh, Nathaniel um, Hackett. Uh, <clears throat> wow. It's just. Um, the, the part that I was talking about earlier in the week, and this is a little retread a bit, but, you know, because of the explosion of popularity of the NFL in the early 2000s, we framed this reference of football around Brady and Manning because that's what most people's first, I mean, not most people, but a large group of people's introduction to football was Brady-Manning rivalries where the NFL explodes from 25 million viewers to 50 million viewers and it over it's it's far and away the most popular sport in america 
And so because that was a lot of people's introduction, we framed the reference of football around Brady and Manning for 20 years. And that's the frame that a lot of people look at football through because for them, it was the prime of their time, you know, the prime of their life getting interested in football. And if you're still a football fan 20 years later, it means you fell in love with it back when you first started getting into it. So that's why I'm cautious about saying it's the it's the best era of football or the golden age of football coming up because I recognize I am in the prime of my life. I am beginning. This is the first era that I'm doing like real analysis of football and like really dedicating a large portion of my life to football. So I'm cautious to say I don't have the perspective on it yet to say it's a golden age of football, but well, and it, you're not it's in starting the, to feel like it. You're not in the prime of your life at 20 years old. So just enough. Yes and no. Yes and no. No, you're not. not. (laughs) Physically, I am, even though I got 36 year old knees at this point. Physically, this (laughs) is supposed to be the prime of your life. And so this is the this is why everyone talks about why Michael Jordan is better. Why do a bunch of 40 year olds talk about Michael Jordan a lot? Because when they were first getting introduced, that was their frame of reference for falling in love with the game. So. Yeah, everyone yeah. kind of views their prime as as the <laughs> prime. That's why people talk about how great the 80s and 90s and 2000s yeah. are. It's because they view it as the prime of their right. life. When, undisputably, so, it's probably better to be alive in the present than it is to be right. alive in any of those times. Even as the, the present does, you know, kind of stink every now and then. Right. So let's, in a couple of weeks, do a Super Bowl preview. Absolutely. And, um, we got to. You know, yeah. Thanks for having me on and, uh, you know, enjoy the games in the prime of your life. (laughs) (laughs) Football prime, Patrick Mahomes, making all of this possible. Shout out Patrick Mahomes. Right. And Thursday (laughs) night games coming next year on Amazon prime. So yes, with Al Michaels and Troy Aikman calling games (laughs) on Amazon. (laughs) Okay, man. Enjoy. Thank you again. This is longer than I anticipated, but always beloved whenever we have these conversations. That's great. Thanks, Little Rock. (laughs) See you later, Walter. Have a great weekend. Thank you, you too. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.